doesn't get any easier after 25 years. No. Tom Williams still thinks about his murdered 24-year-old daughter, Julie, every day. Still thinks about the last time he saw her, Easter, 1996. So that was uh, April, and within 60 days, she was dead. Investigators found the nude, bound, and gagged bodies of Julie Williams and her partner, Lolly Winans, just off the Appalachian Trail in Shenandoah National Park. A year later, police arrested Daryl Rice for attempting to abduct another woman, a bicyclist, in the same area of the park. Five years after that, a grand jury indicted Rice in the murders of Julie and Lolly. Daryl Rice is, you know, pretty much a hot mess. But lawyer and UVA Innocence Project founder Deirdre Enright says Rice was incapable of murdering the two women. He wasn't able to get a woman off a bike, and she threw a soda at him. And sure enough, by 2004, federal prosecutors were forced to drop the murder charges against Rice. Hair and DNA evidence found at the scene did not match his. There's male DNA on the gag in Julie's mouth. There's hairs under the duct tape. They weren't Daryl Rice's. Enright has an alternative suspect, Richard Mark Ivonitz. Police do say Ivonitz was a serial killer, a man who abducted little girls from their porches after school. Police say Ivonitz murdered Katie and Kristen Lisk, 12 and 15, and Sophia Silva, 16. All the same year, Julie and Lolly were killed, and not far away in Spotsylvania County. DNA at the scene in the park does not rule Ivonitz out, but he killed himself as police closed in. Richard Mark Ivonitz killed people. He told his sister right before he killed himself, I killed more people than I can remember. That's not three. Daryl Rice's lawyers first pointed to Ivonitz as the real killer almost 20 years ago. At the time, prosecutors called that argument specious, said there is not one scintilla of evidence to support it. That was just before they dropped the case against Rice. What do you make of Rice's attorney's suggestions that this other guy did it? I think it's a ruse. I miss her a lot. Deirdre Enright has some unusual allies. Harley and Sadie Showalter, whose own daughter, Alicia, was murdered the same month as Julie and Lolly by a killer dubbed the Route 29 Stalker. Alicia's murder has also never been solved. Sadie says she asked investigators a year ago if they'd looked at Ivonitz. They blew that off. They blew it off, and, and they again said, Daryl David Rice. I mean, we're just not finished with him yet. The Showalters want the evidence retested using DNA analysis that has improved dramatically in the last quarter century. You think the answers lie in that lab at Quantico? Yeah, they absolutely do. You test the evidence. And then you say I'm wrong. We've asked the FBI repeatedly, and all we've gotten back 
is silence. In Shenandoah National Park, Bruce Lashan, WUSA 9. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, I'm rejoined by Catherine Miles, and we have a lot more to discuss. And in this particular episode, we again go into graphic granular detail about the behaviour at a number of the crime scenes, and also regarding Richard Evanitz's behaviour. And so listener discretion is advised. Okay, with that having been said... Let's rejoin this fascinating conversation with the brilliant Catherine Miles. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And I am joined by a very special guest again, because I really want to pick her brains even more about her incredible investigative work that's detailed in the book Trailed. So please go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Catherine Miles. I'm an investigative journalist and the author of Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. And it really is a quest, isn't it? We did what was meant to be just part one of the interview, and I just still had so many more questions. And I'm just so thankful that you would come back and talk to me, because I really like to go into the granular detail, as most of my listeners know. And to do this justice, I really wanted to hear from you the detail of some of the things that you've documented in, in your investigation. And every time I go back to it, Catherine, I just start feeling really angry. So I feel fired up again, because I've been revisiting what you've written. So where we left off, we talked a bit about Daryl Rice and the undercover operation. A lot of money was put into that undercover operation. And we started to talk a bit about Evanitz. We didn't go into too much detail, but perhaps you can start off with explaining how Evanitz came on the, the radar in the first place. Right. And he was he was sort of quietly on the radar for several years, but never really rose to a primary suspect in a series of rapes and um, eventually murders of teenagers and young women. And for some reason, people would always kind of give him an eye and then they'd move on and begin to look at another suspect. So for the general public, he was all but unknown until about 2001, 2002, when he made the colossal mistake of abducting an incredibly strong young woman named Kara Robinson. He brought her back to his apartment and really brutally sexually assaulted her over the course of of hours. And she managed to very heroically escape from his apartment and, and through her ingenuity and her ability to keep a cool head, had memorized so many details, both about his car, about the sexual assaults, about his apartment, that she was able to lead law enforcement right to him in his apartment. As soon as he realized that she had managed to escape, he sort of packed his belongings, stopped very bizarrely at Walmart and, you know, bought a series of of items that I think really just kind of go to the the sort of sick and and twistedness of his head and and then went on a a multi-state chase aided and abetted by at least one of his sisters who were trying to help him escape the notice of law enforcement. They eventually tracked him down um, during a high-speed chase in the state of Florida and had put down one of those um, crash mats that that sort of pop the tires of a car and render it 
undrivable. And as the police were bearing down on him, he took his life with a handgun. So at that point, the ability to really interrogate or prosecute him was obviously gone. But what authorities did have was DNA evidence, as well as reams and reams and reams of evidence from his apartment. And it was very clear as soon as they entered his apartment that not only was he a serial sexual predator, but one with, you know, very deep, dark sexual proclivities and sexual violence. And so then he would very quickly then rise to other cases, including at least briefly to Lolly and Julie's. My goodness, the way you've cantered through it, you know, lots went on, didn't it? And, and firstly, just thinking about Cara Robinson, who, like you said, was incredible, incredible survivor through her own ingenuity, memorising things. And just to describe to my listeners, she was 15 at the time and was at her friend's house. She was watering some plants outside and he approached her. He got out of a vehicle and under the guise of selling magazines, he basically pulled a gun on her and got her into his vehicle and made her go into a, a box. And she memorised a serial number even on that box. And you describe all of these things in your book. The reason why I just mention how he did it is because of how quickly he got control of her. So if we think that was going on in, in 2002 where he abducted her and he clearly underestimated her and he raped her, he abused her in every way and his wife was away at the time when he took her to his home address and as you say, she managed to escape, which was incredible and she led law enforcement directly back to him. Now, the timeline is very interesting as well, because if, you know, from my perspective, always thinking about linking cases and where perpetrators are in their criminal career, it shows that he is criminally sophisticated. For me, there was some evidence that he was thinking about certain things in how he carried out these attacks. So, of course, the first thing you would think, well, how many others did he do? And Really, we don't know a huge amount about that. We know that there are lots of unsolved cases, which you detail. But he was, well, law enforcement did think about really three cases. And we don't really know what the task force was doing in its, in its entirety. And I think that part's quite frustrating. So you detail the Sophia Silver case. Now, she was abducted on September 9th, 1996. We talked about her briefly, but she just disappeared from outside her house. She was doing her homework. We know she had a can of soda and then she just disappeared, which always bothers me when girls and women just disappear. And she was found five weeks later. Seven months later, Ron Lisk then comes home on May the 1st, 1997 and finds both his daughters were missing, Kristen and Katie. Now, their ages are interesting as well. Kristen was 15 and her sister Katie was 12 and, and they disappeared in 1997. They were found five days later on, 40 miles away in the South Anna River. And we talked about bodies being found in bodies of water. But the ages are of interest to me and also just the fact of how sophisticated he was. And we know that those offences were linked because of fibres, don't we? Fibres that were found that matched the girls and the trunk of Evanitz's car. And there was also a palm print belonging to Katie Lisk in the trunk of his car. So they were forensically linked. Is there anything more that you know about those cases and, and any of the others that law enforcement may have looked at at the time? 
Right. And just starting with those two. So those are those are three of the murders, two separate instances that I detail in this book that occurred over about an 18 month time period. They began, of course, with Alicia Showalter Reynolds in, in March on Route 29. And then they um, concluded, or at least we think they concluded with the Lisk sisters in May of 97. And again, this is a very rural, very pastoral part of Virginia. And so when we say for instance, Sophia Silva came home and was sitting on her front porch. I mean, this is, you know, 100% classic Americana, right? Like this is exactly where you'd want your kid to come home and do after school. And you would think she was, you know, as safe as safe could be. What I think is really interesting, particularly with the Lisk sisters, is there's forensic evidence that suggests that Kristen, the elder sister, was really the primary target. And that Katie, very unfortunately and tragically, was sort of collateral damage. There's evidence to suggest that Katie was killed quite quickly through blunt force trauma to the head, and Kristen really then became the real focus. Um, and so when you when you think about it in those terms, when we think about, for instance, Kristen and Sophia Silva, we start to see some real commonalities, right? Sort of sexually mature young women in their teens, brown hair, brown eyes, slim builds. And then we start to see the the sexual assault, which in some cases is sort of, you know, artificial penetration. Um, we know that Ivanitz was impotent for a good bit of his adult life. Interestingly, he um, began taking Viagra around the time that we see some of these later crimes happening. So we see him shift from penetrating young women with objects to, you know, actual sort of anatomical rape, right? That's really interesting you say that, actually. The timeline and just understanding that of foreign body insertion, but also superficial penetration and impotence being a factor and a change across time, that is really significant. I think it really is, particularly when we consider, for instance, the vibrator found at Lolly and Julie's scene. And when we consider some other cases that would also eventually be sort of at least superficially pinned to Ivanitz, if not more significantly. Some other things too, including bondage, was obviously a very sort of favorite technique of his. He used a variety of different bondage techniques on Kara Robinson, including handcuffs. Also very chilling and interesting, when she arrived at his apartment, he had a questionnaire for her about her sexual history, which was very, very ruthless and chilling. And also made sure she was hydrated the entire time. I think I mentioned to you earlier that one of the things that was found at the crime scene at Lolly and Julie's crime scene was a bottle of Mountain Dew in a Walmart bag. As far as we know, and as far as friends and family have said, Lolly and Julie never shopped at Walmart and certainly never drank Mountain Dew. And there was a yellowish brown liquid found in Julie's Stomach. So knowing that when he brought Kara Robinson back to her his house, one of the first things he instructed her to do was drink a bottle of Gatorade, that Mountain Dew bottle becomes a little less random at, at Lolly and Julie's campsite. And then there's the way that he disposed of the bodies, which was to wrap them in blankets, tie intricate knots around the bodies, and then, as you said, leave them in very remote wooded areas next to bodies of water, in some cases submerged in bodies of water. He also... Um, took their their underwear and and when investigators would eventually get access to his apartment they found scores of pairs of underwear ranging from fairly young girls up into very you know obviously sexually mature um adult women 
That's fascinating. So the, the questionnaire, that again points to someone who is sophisticated, who's pre-planned, premeditated. It probably is part of his sadistic pleasure as well of having her answer these questions. The hydration point, yes, keeping her alive and well so that he can then do the sadistic acts that he intends to do. So that tells us that he intends to keep her for some time. And of course, once you're taken to a secondary location, um, as I always say, never go to a secondary location, even if someone has a gun. Take your chances there and then. And, and why I'm saying that in this podcast is because I do like to make clear intervention and prevention messages to my listeners, because if you are ever in that situation, you are far better to take your chances at location A, where the perpetrator cannot control you, which is the whole point why they're taking you to location B, the problem is once they get you to location B, that's where you will not be able to have control over your environment and what's going on, which makes it even more remarkable, actually, that Kara managed to escape after he fell asleep. But just those points, when we think about Lolly and Julie, are really significant. And thank you for sharing those. And, and unusual. You know, it, it is unusual. And I, I also want to make that clear Girls, two of them together and women, two of them together being abducted or being murdered together, a double event is extremely rare, which again, in terms of my behavioral analysis, makes it much more significant when I'm looking at someone in terms of a potential suspect for an unsolved case. You look at their behavior across time and we will talk about Alicia again, because you mentioned we, you know, you thought that, or it, it was couched that the series may have started then, but given that that was March 2nd, 1996, and what happened to her was fairly sophisticated again of someone we know approaching her and potentially saying that there were problems with her car or sparks coming out and being able to gain her trust and confidence and to get her in a vehicle and to take her off, then he must have had some form of confidence and plausibility for her to jump in his car and go with him, that she didn't feel threatened by him. She felt reassured. Well, we know with Evanitz, for example, he worked in the Navy. He was in the Navy for some time. So again, you know, monsters don't have two heads. They can be very plausible, very charming. But I doubt very much the series began in 1996. I would imagine there were far more things, Evanitz aside, going on. And of course, we know that with Route, the Route 29 stalker. It really is concerning just how sophisticated he was uh, in that particular year. And of course, you've got Lolly and Julie's case with a big question mark and a clear potential suspect, actually, who has just been happened upon. That's what's so bothersome to me, that had Kara not have escaped, law enforcement wouldn't have known anything about him at all. And as you mentioned, there was the, the chase to apprehend him. And rather than him being arrested, he took control of the situation by ending his own life. And that was a very clear countermeasure on his behalf. And do you recall what he bought prior to that police chase? You mentioned him going to Walmart. I do. And this is really disturbing. He bought a TV with a VCR and he bought some comedies. He bought some horror novels. He bought some things to use for disguise, like hair dye, for instance, and things like that. He refilled his Viagra prescription. I mean, everything about this is just so arrogant and 
certain. And I think that that's really telling, you know, he, what his friends and neighbors would later say was that he was obsessed with the great serial killers of America and, and used to brag that he was smarter than Bundy, for instance, and, and he could do better crime than Ted Bundy could do. And, and we see again and again in his decisions, this, this sort of almost sort of lackadaisical arrogance about the decisions that he makes, which, you know, ultimately was his undoing. He, he got Everything you're saying, I'm just nodding along. That's new information to me about him specifically. But what he was saying in essence was true. He was basically saying that it was the tell, I am clever, I am smarter because I haven't been caught. And that tells me that he had been doing it for a long time. The arrogance that he doesn't think that he probably ever will be because he's been quite clever and he is criminally sophisticated, or he was. Therefore, you know, his narcissism, well, that's what became his downfall, which is what happens with most serial killers. Um, I remember Israel Keyes saying on interview, you know, he said, well, the smartest serial killers are the ones that haven't been caught yet. We don't know who they are. It's true. There, there's no truer word than that. But someone like Evanitz, who probably has been doing it across his whole life course, which is why timelining him would be absolutely key for the FBI to timeline him everywhere that he's been, every relationship he's had. And that's really important to hear from partners, ex-partners, what they would say about him. Because someone with this level of sexual deviancy and power and control issue, that would show up in his relationships. And those women will hold up a mirror to who he truly was. And it sounds like he was incredibly prolific, given the detail and the thought and the planning and, and the bragging, you know, the almost taunting of wanting to be caught and, and wanting to be known for um, his smarts as a serial killer. It really is quite chilling hearing you describe that. Right. And, you know, talking to his first wife, who has been very frank about being his first wife and having no idea that he was a serial killer. And she's been able to factor in some really interesting pieces as well about what he was like, you know, and as you said, his his second head, which could in fact be quite charming. Um, but one of the things that we know was that he would be very easily triggered by events in his life. And so we're able to map some of these crimes along with things that were happening in his personal life. So for instance, with Cara Robinson, his second wife had left with his mother. He was alone. He was frustrated. You know, he also had the availability of the apartment, which made it easier to bring her home. The week that we know that Lolly and Julie were murdered, a very dear relative of his was in was dying in the hospital. And so, first of all, he had reason to be gone from work. He was emotionally distraught. And according to his family members, he was also missing from the hospital for days at end. And so not only did he have an alibi in terms of missing work and supposed to be somewhere else, he was emotionally distraught, which we know was a trigger for him. And we have hours, if not days, of his life in Central Virginia during that time that we he can't account for. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. 
Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want a wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. So those, that's interesting that you say that. So we know that when law enforcement went through his door, there was evidence that he was stalking other girls and women. So they knew that he was prolific. And those women, the, the range of ages is very important because there was a range. And what I certainly know from behavioural analysis of perpetrators is that most oftentimes they act on opportunity and accessibility that yes, a particular victim at a particular time in a particular location for a particular reason, but accessibility is everything and the opportunity, which is why you do see offenders across age ranges, you know, and oftentimes it's a blinkered approach by law enforcement to say, oh, well, that person is a paedophile or that person offends against this age group. It just doesn't happen in reality. That tells me that somebody has not worked these cases. They have no experience because what we in reality see is somebody who will transgress age boundaries um, or ages, particularly, you know, and I've talked with you about it before, a post-pubescent teenager can look like a young you know, 21-year-old, 22-year-old, particularly with girls and women, sometimes you can't even tell the difference. So it's really concerning when you hear law enforcement say very closed statements about, well, he was a paedophile or he was X or he was Y, therefore he couldn't have possibly have done or committed Lolly and Julie's murders. And the timeline, so we know that Lolly and Julie were attacked and murdered on May 28th. Was he ever looked at in terms of his comings and going across that week and whether he entered the park? Well, and this is where the sort of chain of errors becomes just sort of untenable for me. 
first of all, they first looked at him when when he sort of rose to to prominence after his suicide. Um, the first thing they did was they looked at his work logs, his his sort of you know um, time stamp work logs, if you will, and saw that he was gone because he was visiting this relative. Now, his wife and his other close relatives say he was not actually doing that. So that's a problem. The park has cameras at the four entrance stations of the park. At the time of Lolly and Julie's murder, three of those cameras were working. One was not. So we have three quarters of the entrances coming in and out, um, which law enforcement compiled into a very extensive Excel spreadsheet, which they then compared against different license plates. When Avonitz rose to their attention, they did run his license plate against this spreadsheet, but they ran the license plate of a car that he purchased quite suddenly and days after the abduction of Sofia Silva. It was a car that he didn't even own in May of 1996. So we don't even know if that car was ever run. And we also don't know if he went, it's possible that he went in and out of the entrance that was the one that had the broken camera. So so there's just this chain of what is really just starting to look like incompetence on the part of the investigation, where there were multiple opportunities to really kind of firm up a case against Ivanitz and they just let it go. That's extremely concerning. I mean, post-defence behaviour is exactly what we look at, of what was he doing thereafter. So if new cars are suddenly purchased, old cars are dumped, you know, nowadays cell phones and so on, you look at all of that, of how someone's behaving. So, you know, it looks like there are real lines of investigation that still need to be bottomed out. And, and included in that is forensics. So I'm going to come back to forensics. I just really wanted you to share what you found out about um, what Evanitz's wife or any partners said about him. Were, were they surprised or was there clear knowledge about, I mean, some people call it the darkness or, you know, it's sexual fantasy stuff and they never think that this person, even though they're binding them and torturing them and raping them, they never will see it as rape and they never see that they would harm anybody else. And then other times you get women who say, I absolutely knew he'd be harming other women. And in fact, he even told me he was harming other women. What, what did you learn? There was a little bit of both. His family was able to piece together a very troubled childhood, including his mother and his father. Um, there was a lot of abuse, sexual and otherwise, in the house. His father, you know, really had very sort of sociopathic tendencies in terms of killing family pets um, to punish the children, sometimes attempting to drown Mark. We know that Mark very early on developed an obsession with pornography in large part because his father introduced it to him at a young age. He sexually assaulted at least one, if not both of his sisters, beginning at a fairly young age. And then he met his first wife, Bonnie, who was quite young, a neighbor, quite young when they met, and she was very sexually inexperienced. And so I think initially it was fairly easy for him to persuade her that, for instance, bondage and things like that were a natural part of sexuality. Um, and as she has said, very frankly, you know, he could be very charming and he could be a, a good husband. But, you know, I think as she grew older, as she moved around and had more access with the world outside of their small Virginia community, that she began to really see that that what he had sort of brought to her as normal husband and wife sexuality really was, you know, deviant and abusive. And I think it was at that point that she had had enough. There was also the ongoing issue of 
of his impotence. And, and we know that he had some significant rage issues, um, not to mention this obsession, as I mentioned, with serial killers as well. And I think the combination of those things eventually were just the undoing for her. And she she moved away during, I should add, that that their relationship fell on the rocks beginning in the late fall of 1995 and was completely unraveling during the spring, summer, and then fall of 1996. So so right when the height of these killings are happening is right when his marriage is falling apart. And that's exactly what I would be looking for, you know, with a case that you timeline the two together. And it sounds like extensive timelining. I mean, I hope that the FBI did it. Um, I know that an FBI agent called Donald Thompson spoke out and he basically said that there's a painstaking reconstruction of Evanitz's life. You know, that was in 2002, but I don't really know what that means and how detailed it was. And why I ask about his family life and his wife um, or partners is that oftentimes with coercive control, we, we now have a name for it. We now have a language for it. But oftentimes women, particularly in relationships, when we're talking about the 1990s, they don't see that control um, as being a problem. They see it as their wifely duty and that the man is the head of the household and all of this business going on because that's what patriarchy is all about, men having power over. Um, but in the cold light of day, when, when we always hear about serial killer cases, people say, well, what did his wife know? She must have known that he was doing X, Y or Z. And they look to blame the woman for a man's actions, which again is unacceptable. But I'm more interested in the mirror that a woman holds up about who he is and the way that he behaves. Certainly when I use the dash risk checklist, I always ask about what's going on in terms of the sex life, because the hygiene of a sex life tells me a lot about the hygiene um, and the health of the relationship. So if you've got someone who's impotent and they feel rage from it, you would most likely see that explosive rage being meted out on their partner, but also on women who are not significant in their lives, i.e. strangers. And I've seen blitz attacks, confidence attacks, you know, on women as that outlet for that power and control. And, and it is most often premeditated. That's why it's not this kind of impulsive rage. It's something that is pre-planned and really wanting to harm and damage women. And why I was interested, you know, again, in the detail with Lolly and Julie's case is that vibrator um, that was placed there and the foreign object insertion, the lubricants that were taken there, things that are quite unusual, actually, about that case in particular. And yet when we map it across with Evanitz's behaviour, the sex toys, all the things that the FBI found about all this paraphernalia that he had, which took you on a journey, didn't it, to understand what make a vibrator and those kinds of details, which are important in cases like this. And he had no shortage of sex toys and things that he would hand make as well. And he used some of those things on Kara. Um, you talked about the restraints. Like I think there was a blue pair of handcuffs that he used on her in the car. So matching those things against your potential suspect is very important. It certainly seems that Evanitz had a very prolific collection of toys and, and paraphernalia. Tell us a bit about that, Catherine, about your mission and, and what some of the things that you went out to discover. This was the education I never thought I would get when I was writing this book. But but I was really curious about this staged vibrator at Lolly and Julie's scene because it was just this very cheap, run-of-the-mill, rudimentary vibrator. And as Lolly and Julie's former partners and, and friends and things had told me, it, it was not something that belonged 
to the women. And, and by the mid-1990s, far more sophisticated sex toys directed at women already existed. And, and, and we know that at least one of the women owned them. And so, so I became really interested in this sort of, you know, low budget kind of retro, very sort of kind of clumsy vibrator and, and how it was that it got there. And it didn't seem likely to me that two women backpacking would bring one. So um, I did contact, you know, scholars who specialize in the history of vibrators and, and sex toys, you know, generated and, and dedicated towards women. And I also started visiting a series of sex shops as well to really get a handle on this. And, and what people kept telling me again and again was, you know, this was just this sort of knockoff, cheap truck store model, um, which incidentally, we found multiple examples of in Mark Ivanitz's house when police went to go inventory the material there. Also very interesting and chilling. We know that Ivanitz base would tinker with these and kind of make them unique and his own in different ways. He became sort of this kind of Frankensteinian aficionado where he'd take parts from one and add it to another and things like that. And there are signs of tampering on this particular uh, vibrator as well that looked like it was somehow modified, which was very much in keeping with him. There was also, as I mentioned, there was lubricants that were found on Julie as well, not found at the scene. We did find multiple lubricants in his home. None of these things were ever cross-tested against Lolly and Julie, nor were the panties found in his apartment ever tested. We know, for instance, that it appears that there are panties of Julie's that are missing based on the inventory of the two backpacks. It seems like she doesn't quite have enough. We know her size. We know her brand. As far as I know, no one's ever looked for them, let alone attempted any DNA testing based on the dozens of pairs of panties that were found in a chest in Ivanitz's house. That's deeply disturbing. I mean, I was going to ask you, were those tests ever done? And you, you answered that question. And also other women, the, the women that were listed in Evanitz's home address. Now, you did mention that, that you did reach out to some of the women and it seems that the FBI never did. And that just seems like a glaring omission when we're looking at an investigation to know how robust it was in terms of pursuing all lines of inquiry or whether it's just a case of, well, he's dead now. Ergo, there's no point really putting resources into timelining him and, and really doing a robust investigation, which is really important for other women and for other victims and for other families. And that's what Deirdre Enright of the Innocence Project and I are working on right now. She and I have started going back. He was a very regular user and early adopter of online dating sites, beginning in the very early 1990s when they were very, very sort of crude rudimentary sites. And he would regularly troll for women there. What I find particularly chilling was he very much favored women who had a disability or were going through a really painful breakup or were somehow vulnerable. Those were the women he really keyed in on. I believe that's probably how he found Ann McDaniels was on an online site. But Deirdre and I did find this list of women who were readily findable today and began making contact with them and, and having what I'm sure was an unimaginably bizarre and troubling conversation with them. Because in the case of several of the women that we talked to, who he had met online, they had no idea that at this point, this man was already a known serial killer. They had they had absolutely no idea. And then there are the, the other women 
you know, over a dozen women who we can't find right now. And those are the women who really keep me up at night, you know, is, as I say in the book, you know, who's searching for them right now and who's looking for answers. And as time allows, we're trying to slowly unpack these. We know that he had a cousin who shared his name and was nearly identical in terms of appearance and birth date and age who lived in Chicago. A lot of these women lived in Chicago. I have great fears that Chicago might have been a hunting ground for him where he felt particularly emboldened. And so far as we know, none of these investigations have ever happened. Well, we know that he was emboldened because he was boasting about it and bragging about his exploits, right? And when you get away with things, that's exactly what happens. You are green lit and you feel invincible. So I would imagine that, yes, on the one hand, you could say, well, maybe women moved away or, you know, they went through a trauma with him and therefore they took themselves off somewhere. But what if he disappeared them? That's why I always worry about women who've just disappeared. And it it just points to me to an incomplete investigation into him. And you have to bottom out these things It's just deeply disturbing, given that he was in the Navy. On the face of it, he could be charming, plausible, as you've just shared. He clearly was hunting vulnerable women as well. So he knew exactly, um, just like a serial perpetrator and a serial killer learns their tradecraft. They don't emerge fully formed. He learned his as he went along and he got away with it for so long of controlling his environment and fooling people. So I would imagine that he was arrogant about that. And the fact that There was no rigorous investigation. Well, the forensics, let's talk about that because there's obviously investigative lines of inquiry, but with Lolly and Judy's case, we know that there were hairs from the duct tape and there were also gloves that were believed left there by the killer. We know that there were also forensics in uh, Alicia Showwater's case and Anne McDaniel's and others that appear not to have been cross-matched with Evanitz's DNA. Can you just explain why and how and and what you found out, because this is just mind-blowing to me. I cannot explain why and how, and it is infuriating, but I can tell you what happened. I can tell you that gloves that were a size small and cigarette butts were found next to Alicia Showalter Reynolds's car. We know that there were some knuckle hairs that were found in those gloves. Um, we can say that small, size small gloves were found at Lolly and Julie's campsite. And as you and I talked about on the last episode, there were also cigarette butts that were found on that one place where the campsite was visible. There were knuckle hairs that were taken from those gloves at Lolly and Julie's site. I should say that forensic science has rightly problematized hair identification on sort of microscopic analysis alone. That said, the hair could not be ruled out as Avonitz's based on microscopic analysis, that it did in fact appear microscopically to be similar to Avonitz's. And then there were additional hairs that were found in the duct tape that were used to bind Lolly and Julie. Those hairs did undergo mitochondrial DNA analysis which is about a 600 to 800 point test. And what they do is um, our DNA has four different proteins. We'll just call them A, B, C, and D for, for now. And so each human's protein fires these you know, 600 point chains and mine might be A, 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 B, C, and yours might be D, C, D, C, B. And we can look at these sort of numeric combinations and say, well, clearly this DNA comes from two different people. So so based on this multifold test, they took the mitochondrial DNA of the hair wrapped in the duct tape and they compared it to both 
Daryl David Rice and Mark Ivanitz using this 800 point test. Daryl David Rice was very clearly not the contributor of the hair. There were, you know, next to no matches in these four protein sequences. Mark Ivanitz matched in all but two places. Now, the FBI lab's policy is that if a hair sample matches in everywhere but two places or fewer, that person cannot be ruled out as a suspect because it is considered such a close match. What makes this even more chilling is that one of those places is considered by the FBI lab to be lab error so that it could have been a match against Ivanitz. This other place, and this is kind of getting in the weeds of some science here, but this other place is where we now know and only began to know in 2002 um, where there is this sort of biological occurrence called heteroplasmy, where our body as it's firing off these DNA proteins, can occasionally misfire a protein so that if you took two strands of my hair, my hair might not match in this place because my body misfired a protein. We now know that there's a 40% chance that hair will have an instance of heteroplasmy in this one place. And that is exactly where they found the one difference in the DNA. So, so that makes it all the more compelling, I think, that we can't rule out Ivanit. What I find deeply, deeply disturbing is that when this information was given to the the FBI agent in charge of the case, at that point, that agent made the decision not to do any other forensic or DNA testing against Mark Ivanitz, despite the fact that that person's own lab was saying, not only can you not rule out this individual, but we have very good reason to believe that if this person didn't do it, this person certainly requires far more in-depth forensic investigation. That's just mind-blowing to me of why a decision would be taken. And knowing that Rice was excluded and yet a lot of money and time and energy is put into an undercover operation when there are forensics along with the timeline. You know, even if you have something that's still a question mark, someone can't 100% be, you know, yes, we know for sure it's him. But then once we start to build the case of the timeline and you layer it in, circumstantial evidence and so on, then it starts to become much more compelling. And it's just deeply disturbing that those tests haven't been done. And also, you know, what struck me about the book was that Lolly and Julie's case on the 25th anniversary, rather than put money, time and energy into reviewing all the forensic work, it seems that they decided to put posters up of the girls and, sorry, of the women and ask about witnesses and lines of inquiry. I mean, that, that to me, you know, yes, do that. But when you've got something tangible that you can work with, why are you not doing it? And what's even more frustrating is all of the items taken from his apartment after his death are currently in boxes and being held in the state of Virginia by local law enforcement. The evidence is there, it's available. And and I think if I, if I have a hope in all of this, it's my hope that readers and listeners can help mount a campaign and put pressure on the public officials who can order these tests. And, you know, as I've said to you before, I can't say for certain whether or not Mark Ivanitz did this, but I do know that he seems like a very strong suspect and that that due diligence has not been done to rule him out. And that is such a disservice, not only to the family and friends of Lolly and Julie, but to an entire generation of hikers, especially female and queer hikers, who no longer feel safe in the woods because there is no closure in this case. 
I'm so glad you said that because I would like my listeners to know what they can do um, to create pressure and noise. Because a lot of people, when I've been talking about the case, have said they've never heard of it. They've never heard of Lolly and Julie. And, th- and that's really bothersome as well. Why do you think people haven't heard about the case? Yeah, you know, and I think about this a lot because the, you know, the crime obviously occurred in late May of 1996. And when I think back to that time, you know, it was a very tumultuous time. That was the summer of the Atlantic City Olympics bombing. There were there were other things that were happening and and for whatever reason, I think we as a culture fixated on one thing versus another. It certainly was in the national news a great deal initially that summer. I think there was a lot of other upheaval that was happening as well, too. You know, it's really fascinating to me. I, who was a backpacker and a sexual assault survivor and identified with Lolly and Julie in so many very real ways, I missed news of it. It was my college graduation weekend. And I think I was just so self-absorbed with all of that, that I missed the news about it. And I didn't learn about it until two years later. But but such an important case and such an important case also historically, because then Attorney General John Ashcroft made the decision to make this our first federal hate crime case as well. And it's a very open federal hate crime case. And it's a capital hate crime case. So there's a lot of history here that I think makes this important, not only for Lolly and Julie, who were these exceptional humans who lost their lives and and the reverberations of that, I think, are still being felt, but also because this is a very important precedent for what we do with hate crimes in this country right now. Yes, and it's a very dangerous precedent, actually. Uh, As I always say with cases, you clear the ground from under your feet. Before you look at other lines of investigation or inquiry, you clear the ground from under your feet, i.e. if there are forensics outstanding, well, invest in that. That is a clear, tangible line of investigation. And and just as we were talking, Kathy Thomas and Becky Dowski weren't far from my mind, which is, you know, how we started talking. You know, the cigarette butts and the hair that Bill Thomas and others, including myself, really want to be tested. You know, we still have exhibits that exist and yet silence from the FBI. And Bill is a fantastic advocate for his sister. And, you know, with these cases, you have to have people who keep speaking out, who keep that pressure on. So I just want to thank you for doing that. It's so important, isn't it? And I know you really chimed with Lolly and Julie, as you said, you're a sexual assault survivor. So many women are. And that again, you know, I'm sorry you had that experience. You've clearly turned that into your fire and your power, your superpower. So I want to thank you for that. And you share a lot in the book, actually, the toll that this investigation has taken on you, because it does, you know, you felt angry at times and frustrated, but we have to keep demanding answers. And Bodies like the FBI, same with New Scotland Yard, they're public funded bodies and they should be giving us the answers. They don't necessarily need to give the nuanced detail of things, but in terms of what's been tested and if there's still outstanding exhibits, why not just green light that? And then we'll have an answer either way. And it's so important for the women and for their families and they won't stop. And I know you won't either. So thank you very much for your work. And if there's anything else we haven't covered or anything else that you feel is really important for my listeners to know, you know, I want to make sure you've covered everything and shared everything that you would like to in this conversation, because I could talk to you for many days. Well, and I hope we can keep talking, but I I will say that this is still very much 
an ongoing investigation for me. You know, I more than exceeded the number of extensions that were allotted to me by my publisher because I kept just wanting to make more and more progress on this case before we published the book. But but obviously we had to eventually publish it. But but just because the book is in the world doesn't mean that we're done at all. It's still very much on my mind and and very much the sort of central focus of what I'm doing. And and I really do believe in crowdsourcing and the incredible work that so-called amateur detectives have done and moved cases forward, like the, you know, the the three amazing guys who solved the Zodiac Cipher. And so I would really invite your listeners, if this case resonates with them in any way, shape, or form, to really, you know, be in touch with me, share ideas, share tips share thoughts and and share where they think I got it wrong too because what I want more than ever is is closure for Lolly and Julie and and the myriad people who have been deeply affected by this case. Yes, albeit I don't always think there's closure anyway. I think once we find some answers, it just raises a whole load of other questions. And I know you mean closure in, in the best sense, but I think with families, you know, when these traumas happen, victims and families I've worked with, they tend to find a, a new way to exist. And there's never a closure point. There's always an anniversary. There's always a day where you're triggered into a thought or a memory and they never forget their loved ones. But to have two incredible women brutally murdered in such a place of beauty on a weekend where so many people were in the park, it's really important that for public safety, the right messages go out. And these unresolved cases are just deeply troubling. And I think the linkage blindage, you know, which I always seen this link blindness that law enforcement have, because that's really what I started out doing for 10 years is linking major crime. It really is deeply disturbing. And it allows serial perpetrators and serial killers like Mark Evanitz to carry on and do what they do and get better at it. So then when they're eventually caught and you get a law enforcement official say, see where the problem is, they hide in plain sight, they're so difficult to catch. Well, actually, there's normally many intervention opportunities that pass people by. And everything about Crime Analyst is about highlighting those lessons so that we can keep ourselves safer from the Evanitzes and the John Meehans, these men, and it is primarily men who prey and who are predatory towards women. You know, we want to know how to get better and how to protect ourselves. And that's also another part to it. That's why I say, always say there's so many questions that always come out of every case. And I'm always looking at the intervention and prevention opportunity. And I just wish my law enforcement professionals and, and cohort would do the same, you know, and always think about it in terms of turning on its head of how do we get better at doing what we do. And I think the book Trail offers, it's a difficult and uncomfortable read and it will be for professionals, but we have to be challenged and we have to do better. On that note, thank you, you know, very much for your time and thank you for investigating. And I'm really intrigued to know what else, you know, you come up with and also keep in touch and, and let me and also my listeners know how, how we can best help you as you continue on your journey. So thank you very much, Catherine. And thank you, because honestly, journalists like me cannot do our work unless experts like you are willing to share your expertise. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for your patience and your commitment to this and other cases. Thank you. Okay, I'm jumping in here to wrap the episode. Well, what did you make of our discussion? Catherine's knowledge of this case and detailed reinvestigation is impressive, isn't it? There's a huge amount of behavioural information to process in Lolly and Julie's case and regarding Richard Evanitz. 
You also heard us discuss Cara Robinson's abduction and multiple rapes. Now, I believe she wasn't a planned victim, i.e. she wasn't targeted. I suspect he saw her whilst he was out and about, and he took the opportunity because the desirability was so strong. And that happens with predatory stalkers. They can act in the moment and become reckless, and that's often how serial killers are caught, in my experience. I believe Evanitz was a predatory stalker who was very prolific, and I suspect he was abusing girls and women across his whole life course. And that's what he told his sister. Whilst the police were chasing him down, he was on the phone to her, having escaped after Cara Robinson, and he told her that he had abused more girls and women than he could remember. Also, him using Viagra is interesting, and also using lubricants and vibrators on the victims and bondage restraints. And it's also very curious when you overlay it with the timeline of his relationship breakdown. That's fascinating. He needed power and control over women. And Evanitz liked to take his time in a location where he could control the victims and external factors and influences. He stalked his victims and he spent time doing so. And that's very interesting when thinking about Lolly and Julie, because I believe they were stalked too. Also, analysing the photos of Lolly and Julie, Kristen Lisk, Sophia Silver, Anne McDaniels, Alicia Showalter-Reynolds and Becky Dowski. And when I look at their pictures, I see similarities in the victimology. Now, Cara Robinson and Kathy Thomas are somewhat different. Take a look for yourself and let me know what you think on social media. And so I'm not finished with this case. Now I have a much more detailed understanding, I have many more questions. And so I wanted to talk with Bill Thomas, Kathy's sister, and Kristin Dilley, Bill's colleague and researcher and friend who manages the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page. And I'm going to share that conversation with you because it's really fascinating. Okay, let me know your thoughts about the case so far. Until next time, be curious ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude. <laughs>